Okay. Jesus Christ! Was no, born okay. on Christmas no. Day. <laughs> no, he was born wasn't. On Amen. Day. And, oh, well, okay. Well. You saved us all from Satan's power, and we had gone astray. Sorry. So I know. Before we get in, I always thought that Mr. Sandman was a Christmas song, and it was Mr. Santa. Stop. Because it starts. No, I'm not even kidding you. Until this last year, I'm not even kidding. Because it starts off sounding like a Christmas song. It goes like, Mr. Santa. Mr. Santa. What kind of Christmas music do you listen to? I have a playlist. This is powerful. This is good. Okay, focus up. Let's make a podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Steven. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that the show will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome, my dear friends. How are you today? Thank Josh, you. Josh, you have to stop with these noises, my man. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You're killing me. <laughs> Good thing we I hire an editor to character. do this. Oh yeah, hire. Work for hire. Steven, I will I will increase your salary next year. We're coming to that close of a year. We are, yes. I will triple your salary for this project next year oh, from zero so to kind. zero. You're so kind, Josh. So Josh, since you were so loud with your slurpage, what are you consuming as your beverage today? Um, I'm drinking a kava tea by Yogi, and it's delicious. Ooh, obviously, Excellent. you heard it. Yeah. Steven? Yeah, we did. I'm ringing in the season, man. I got my slippers. And my sweatpants and a mug of hot chocolate. Let's get into it. I'm ready for this. Nice. Wait, what brand of hot chocolate? Couldn't tell you. Made it in the Keurig. Oh. Um, Keurig hot chocolate. It's delicious. It's chocolate. I didn't know you could do hot chocolate in that. Yeah, it's so it's water. It's it's a water based hot chocolate because it's Keurig. I'm not gonna just put milk through my Keurig, Josh. Jeez. (laughs) I mean. You could always heat it up the old-fashioned way. I know, um, but I need—I didn't what about have you, that Emily? much time. I y'all will be proud of me. I created a peppermint white hot chocolate in the comfort oh. of my home. Nice! Wow! Yeah. Did I miss the hot chocolate memo? Or like, yeah, you did. Hey, it's uh, Christmas, my man. Chocolate. It's yeah, Christmas okay. time. I don't know. I don't know where you're stuck time at. of the year. It Sorry? is. No, you're good. The, this okay, is, you keep going with the... Okay, moving on. This is truly like the most wonderful time of the year because uh, if y'all didn't know, um, Christmas is upon us. And mm-hmm. with that, you know, Christmas is not about Santa and gifts and ho, ho, ho and all that. It is about <gasps> the birth of Jesus. Like, that's incredible, I think. Uh, Absolutely. And actually, at the start of the liturgical year, like Advent... You know, we're preparing for the season of Jesus's birth. And it's so important, in fact, that the Gospels seem to share it twice. That's how important it is, that there are two different narrations of the birth of Jesus. Uh, so I think or it's you could what? also look at it as only half of them talk about it. That's true. Uh, so maybe it's yes. not as important. Right. Yeah. I think it is, though. I think it is, though. No, I agree it's important, but... Excuse me, my friend Mark begs to differ. <laughs> I didn't know you were so close to Mark. Sorry, we got the sass. I got the sass on this. You do. You gotta tone <laughs> okay. it down, man. I don't this know if we're gonna talk about to this, but Emily, do you know why Mark and John don't mention the birth narrative in the way that Matthew and Luke do? I don't know anything about that. Uh oh, who you're putting me on the spot here. Uh, to my knowledge, the author of Mark wanted to focus more on just a quick snippet of the acts of Jesus. Uh, mm. 
as evidenced the, by the word immediately in and all, at, almost and every at chapter. The ta- yes, that is so hmm. true. So true. And at the time, whomever wrote Mark, I just I don't think the the story or the tradition of Jesus' birth was thought to be crucial. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I guess some of my background knowledge, as I understand it, Mark was penned by a dude named John Mark, and he mm-hmm. was getting his stories from the Apostle Peter. Yeah. And he, like, basically they, and it's also the earliest gospel, if I it is, am yes. correct. So they mm. they were quickly, like, trying to just write stuff down so that they could have a common touch point that could get copied by scribes and spread out and just as a, a primer to, hey, this this guy Jesus was just alive and then he died and then he was alive again and this is mm. what he did. Then yeah. Matthew and Luke come in and follow up with very specific audiences in mind. So Matthew goes mm. to write to Jewish audiences mm-hmm. and this is why we have the genealogy in the first right. chapter is he's trying to establish the direct bloodline back to King David. And then he goes even further past that, right? Like, yeah, he starts mentioning all the, the, yeah, exactly. And then Luke takes more of like a, a scientific, or at least what was scientific in the day. Like he, he is just creating a doctor's report to an acquaintance of his saying, this is what I've learned by interviewing all these people. And he, he felt it was important to include to more of a, a broader audience than just Matthew trying to establish the genealogy to his right. Jewish audience. Because Luke and Matthew had other sources other than Mark. They utilized Correct. Mark and other sources, whereas Mark really didn't. Yeah. Mark was like direct from Peter's mouth or at least apocryphally. Right. And then John just takes like the mystical direction and starts within the beginning was the word. And that was Jesus, by the way. You know? <laughs> Yeah, really. He has, doesn't he has focus a completely the... different agenda. He's not a well. So yeah, he's not the, one of the synoptic gospels, as they're called. Right. And so I think out of the synoptic gospels, then the fact that two of the three include a birth narrative uh, speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. So, to my understanding, you both actually have each of the gospels which has a birth narrative in it. Just a quick glance. Just a quick. Look, see. We'll start with Matthew. Um, who has Matthew? I do. <gasps> Josh, just looking at the headings of chapters or sections, um, what do you see as important parts of the birth narrative? And then we'll hear about um, Luke's and we'll do a comparison. Matthew seems to care a lot about genealogy. He goes on for that for 17 verses and then has a small chunk about the uh, foretelling of Jesus's birth. Actually, no. Excuse me. He like dramatically summarizes Jesus being born. And then it has a longer bit about the wise men coming to Mm. visit. And then after that, it's like post-birth, basically. Like, actually, the wise men is already post-birth. So, actually, the actual birth of Jesus, compared to the genealogy and the visit of the wise men, is dramatically shorter in Matthew's gospel. Interesting. Which I've never realized before. That is kind of interesting. Get into it. Yeah. So Luke starts with, again, his, the dedication to his friend Theophilus that he's writing to specifically. And then we have a lot of stuff about John the Baptist's birth. So we have John's birth announced to Zacharias. And then we jump to Christ's birth announced to Mary through the messenger angel Gabriel, who is specifically mentioned. Um, and then we have a party go down between Mary and Elizabeth and Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary is, is pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth points out my baby is like, is freaking out in my womb. I think he knows something special about your baby. And then Mary busts into a worship song. That's absolutely, absolutely beautiful in my eyes. And then the birth of John the Baptist happens. And then Zacharias, he has a prophecy that's a good long, you know, tying things back to uh, the house of David, talking about a child being born for the remissions of sins through the tender, tender mercy of our God. And then we have Christ born to Mary beginning in chapter two. And 
wow, I mean, Luke has so much more than Matthew does. So mm-hmm. he is he is born. Um, let's see. This is where we get the classic manger scene. Glory in the highest party with the angels showing up and singing to the <laughs> shepherds and the shepherds being sent to go visit Jesus. And then we're into post-birth, like the circumcision of the child, Jesus presented in the temple, all that stuff. So, Any mention of fleeing to Egypt? Oh, mine I, does, but I consider that that was later okay. than the birth narrative. Sure. Yeah, I actually don't. Just a quick scan. I'm not seeing Egypt in Luke here. Interesting. So even then, you know, there are elements of the birth narrative that one gospel considers to be crucial enough to have written, whereas right. one does not. It's been stitched together for sure for what we have in yeah. our 2020 context. Of the birth narratives of those two, which was the one that you most commonly read or heard as a child or growing up? I want to say Luke, because Luke feels much more like a modern narrative because there's it seems like there's more of a story mm-hmm. versus like uh, in Matthew's gospel. If you just zoom in, the birth narrative itself doesn't seem like a narrative. Sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of extra characters to Luke. He's establishing like an entire cast for act one of the show, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. We have Elizabeth, Zacharias, John the Baptist, um, the angel. Mary, Joseph. Uh, yeah, exactly. The shepherds, the magi. Absolutely. Oh, fascinating. I, yeah, definitely. I heard Bert, like both growing up. I think Luke was utilized more, but I have definitely heard sermons or at least uh christmas programs that focused on matthew's interpretation Mm. which is interesting since there's not a lot there right i will point out that the magi are not part of luke it's only the shepherds part of the story it's only the shepherds so the magi are in matthew right so why what's the significance of that do you think wait the magi are only in matthew i'm not seeing mention of them in luke at all Oh, that is interesting. Um, I don't know. I've never, I guess I've never noticed that before. And I think that right there is what's so interesting about the concept of the birth narrative is, in fact, Mm. we don't just read one or the other. We actually take elements of both and then combine it to create said narrative. Right. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So I do do like. Oh, go ahead, Stephen. Sorry. I do like the juxtaposition of the two, and I actually do like them put together because in my mind. Actually, I remember my mom speaking to this when I was little. She was always like, or she always told me, mm. the wise men and the shepherds are included in the story because it shows that Jesus is is here for everyone in any mm. sort of rank or like, because we always hear about shepherds being like the lowliest of lows. They're dirty. They're stinky. Mm. They're always out in the wilderness. They're fighting monsters or like bears and lions and stuff. And then the wise men or the magi were the the rich and powerful more they were in places of status so jesus is the equalizer where people of high status and low status come together so i've found that compelling i also think something that just occurred to me today was Hmm. uh, actually just now when we mentioned egypt in the matthew story i think matthew probably and i bet i've heard this before this i'm sure this is not a new uh, revelation or something fresh from mm-hmm. me, but I think there's there's something to Matthew writing to his Jewish audiences, mentioning specifically that Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt for a time because of Herod's trying to stamp out the Christ because Herod feels a a threat to his authority. The fact that mm-hmm. the fact that Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt, which is the exact place where Moses came out of as well. It's like, we're back to square one. We have to, we have to Mm. show the Messiah actually comes out like of Egypt himself again in a way. Mm. I really like that. I think that's significant. It's like, it's pointing out to the Jewish people. We've, we've accidentally held our ties to Egypt by the way we tried to model our whole kingdom after theirs. Like, we demanded a king, we got Saul, and look how good that turned out after mm, <laughs> after many sure. kings and empire splits and stuff. It's like the the Messiah has to both be born in a humble place like Bethlehem, but also spend time in Egypt 
himself. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. I think that is something that Matthew definitely wanted his readers to notice. So if you were to tell someone, you know, the, the birth narrative, someone who's never heard it, or if you were given the task, you know, to share it, what would be elements that you would include to be important? Would you include the encounter that Mary and Elizabeth had with their with their wombs? Would you have, you know, the angels approaching Mary and Joseph or just Mary? What are elements that you consider to be crucial to the birth narrative and why? Oh, wow. You know, honestly, I kind of like Matthew's um, like whittled down version. Like he doesn't include all of those extra details. It's just a really summarized version of Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph and that's this is what they named him. And there was an angel that appeared to Joseph and told him that it was going to happen. But other than that, he was just born and here's his name. And I like how it just like anchors uh, Jesus's birth as a human mm-hmm. in like that physical element. And it's kind of uh, it's kind of divorced from the spiritual mythology of perhaps why this came to be versus like Matthew's clearly trying to make some appeals to the Jewish history and saying like, well, he's one of us. He like came from us mm-hmm. and he's, mm-hmm. he's right. a human. Yeah. So he was, he was born. And I feel like that's fine, honestly. Yeah. I think that perhaps like if we're going to talk about like Jesus as the incarnation, like that's probably the most important part of the puzzle is he was mm-hmm. born. And I feel like all the other kind of stuff is like, just like frills on the cake, maybe. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, obviously, Luke saw it as important, so I don't want to downplay that. But yeah, I guess I really like Matthew's version. I think what we are lacking there, though, is the shepherd's inclusion in the story. Mm-hmm. Again, back to mm-hmm. the the angels chorus announces hope for the lowest of lows in their mm. economic system. Sure. And, and sure. not like they get they get the message beamed to them directly. It's not like they just hear about it because the whole town is talking about it. They get it directly mm. and they get to be part of the party as it were. And I, I think that's something Matthew, if it was only Matthew, I think that would be something we would be sad we were missing. Mm-hmm. Mm. So now that we have sort of an understanding of, you know, each gospel's said interpretation um, and elements that we consider to be crucial. What are elements that you think of the birth narrative are kind of far fetched? What are elements Ooh. that you feel, you know, Josh, you were saying some of it maybe is not as necessary as needed, but what are elements that you think are kind of going beyond a historical understanding or things that you just read as symbolic? Here's one that I think is really misunderstood that someone taught me a couple years ago. Do you know much about The Innkeeper? Have you ever heard this one? Actually, yeah. And that's what I was going to bring oh. in. So go, go ahead and share it. Go ahead and Ooh. share it. Well, you might have more insight into this because you actually went to seminary. But the explanation I heard was that um, someone, my teacher at the time used this as an example of like knowing cultural context and how it informs reading the biblical text. Mm-hmm. And he drew out the typical geometry of a household at the time. When you first walked into a house, it was pretty typical to have the door facing a stall going back into the house where the animals were often kept. And dividing that little stall for the animals was like a half wall. And then to the right, so you like walk in and you would see that stall in the front but then if you turned right instead of walking into the stall was the rest of the house, which may or may not have been divided by a wall or a false wall mm-hmm. um, to divide like living and sleeping quarters from the rest. Um, or it could have just been one big room and then there was the half wall with like the animal section. So he used that piece of information to give context to two different stories. One was the Old Testament story of Jephthah. Do you guys know that story? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know that one, Stephen? Um, it's not coming to me off the top of my um, head. The it's really it's infamous because Jephthah is this like warrior for Israel, and he basically like makes one of those famous pacts with God, like God, I will I'll do anything. But instead of like 
just saying that, he was like, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house oh. when I get home, if you let me win this war. Yeah. And then he ends up sacrificing his daughter. Right. Yeah. In the biblical story. Yes. But okay. like, if you read that and you like, don't know about the typical Jewish household that would have read is really weird. Like, why would he ever promise that? But it totally makes sense knowing that like the animal stall was like right next to the door. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. okay. So in his mind, it was going to be an animal. Like one of the animals is going to run out when they open the door. Right. Not a human. Sure. And so then reading the biblical narrative and reading that uh, Joseph and Mary had to go back for a census, according to the text, um, to the town of their birth, we already know that the people at the time were such a hospitable culture, um, not even to just your immediate family, but in general, they pract- they had like a, a culture of hospitality. Mm-hmm. So like the the concept of hotels didn't exist right like you would you would go and like you would just be accepted into huh. someone's home and so the whole this whole like story arc of like a an innkeeper who's like run out of hotel rooms is just kind of far fetched because it's a very modern yeah input yeah it's of definitely the text. a very modern reading versus a, a reading where you're aware of um, the typical household structure, like mm-hmm. if Joseph and Mary went back to a town where they were born or where Joseph was born, they most likely had some family in that town. Or even if they didn't have family, it was a hospitable culture and a pregnant woman would have been taken inside. And if they had been outside of or if um, they had run out of room inside the house because of other people traveling for the census, um, it's perfectly within reason that they just had to sleep with the animals in the animal stall in the house, not like in a barn. You pinned it right on the donkey. Excellent job, Josh. <laughs> a plus. Oh, thank you. A nice. plus. Nice. Um, and that right there, you speak so well to how just even the birth narrative, how we want to combine elements of the two gospels, how we want to have a modern interpretation. So there's this innkeeper. Mm who's managing an inn and tells them there's no room, you can go sleep in the stable. That's a very Mm -hmm. modern understanding because take, for instance, you know, Western United States. I'm thinking Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, places like that, where their stable is going to be far from the house. And so we're interpreting it as, oh, you can't stay here. There's no room. So you got to go way out here all by your lonesome with this cow and this sheep and this donkey over here. Right. And that right. is not the case, historically speaking. Um, and it's so neat because, and this sort of ties into one of the things, I guess, that I don't like about oh. the birth narrative, at least, is, you know, how where, let's just say, for example, you know, Herod wants to demolish a temple, so he put something there. Well, that's how we know that that temple existed, because he put something on top of it. Yeah. So right. the same actually goes for the supposed historical site of Jesus's birth. Mm. There's actually a church built on top of the ruins of some king's temple because the king wanted to get rid of the supposed site of Jesus's birth. So that's how we know historically this is the supposed site of Jesus's birth. Mm. And Mm, when you enter, it honestly, when I went, the line is so long. There are people who could wait in line all day to go into this spot and they will never reach it because they're there Mm. all day. And then finally, you know, the security guards or whoever is at the church says, okay, we're closing. Sorry. Like come again tomorrow if you're able to. Um, Mm. But when I went with my class in seminary, we were lucky enough. We were very lucky enough to have a chance to go in and see the site. It was a dark kind of damp cave. like. This part of the stable was sort of like a basement area to separate animals and to separate elements needed in the stable. And so as you walk in, it's this really dark candlelit room. There's like no electricity. They kept it very traditional, traditional, very aesthetically (laughs) pleasing for those going on this pilgrimage, essentially, to see the site. And what they did is they put the star on the ground and there's this clear center cut spot where it supposedly is 
blood from Mary as she was giving birth. Huh. Whoa. And so they've like symbolically considered that to be the spot. So there are people who literally will travel thousands of miles to come to the spot and you get to touch it. You get to touch the star. And then you leave. Like you have just a quick second huh. to touch, to look, and then to leave because there are so many people there in line that want to witness this incredible experience. Interesting. It is so interesting. And I've I think, never heard of this. What do you think about this? And that's what, what I was going to ask. What are your thoughts? I want to hear your thoughts first. You were there. It, two part. One was truly, I mean, I cried. And I didn't cry because I was like, oh my God, this is where it took place. Because we really just mm. don't know. I cried just being in a, being, I guess, presenting myself in the spot that potentially it could have happened and to actually see what mm. the experience could have been like. Like it wasn't out in an open wooden stable where there's hay and there's, you know, it's nice and the stars are showing. Like it was in a basement sort of. It was literally like deep in the ground. You go in and it's dark. Like you don't get to see outside. Like think mm. about it, you're in a building. And so... You go in, I could just imagine the smell because it was still kind of rank. <laughs> and mm. I'm imagining like the candles. And so for me to physically be there, even just for a moment to say like, wow, this is what it was like for Jesus to be born. It truly mm. moved me to tears. But then I was really mm. heartbroken because of the commercialized element of the birth narrative. Like, here's this sure. star. We're going to market this idea that this is mary's you know vaginal blood of her giving birth so people are going to come and they're going to wait all day to just even take a picture if they're lucky of this supposed spot to me can hinder someone's belief because of the marketing mm. of the birth and the same was totally my experience when i went to the jordan river like the commercialized being baptized, being able to be dunked, sort of speak, in the oh, Jordan. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. Oh, it just, a part of me is moved, but a part of me is just really saddened because it kind of takes sure. away the the joy and the spiritual element of what is happening. Instead, you, mm. purchase, you purchase a $10 white robe. You wait in oh, line what? to be, yes. Yeah. Oh. Yes. And the same is for where jesus was born is they have these commemorative plaques and they have this you know you can get sand or dust from bethlehem and it's supposedly it's just very commercialized and so i wasn't moved mm. because that's where jesus was born i was moved because i was placed in a situation where it could have happened and it wasn't mm. altered in any way that was the thing was they built the church but when you actually go into the site, nothing about it was modern. It was all as it was. I guess what I can appreciate it is about it is that uh, they're obviously trying to like remember and like ground faith in reality. Yeah, and I can that appreciate, I can appreciate. That. Yeah, but like at the same time, I feel like even I wasn't raised with the idea either that like we worship the ground that Jesus walked on, and that like it might be yeah. cool to go see it because it's real places but like at the end of the day it kind of doesn't matter like the exact spot or even like the exact placement of bethlehem exactly. where jesus was born like what matters was that like and i think this is john's angle possibly is like what matters is that god came to us mm -hmm. I like think, god, god was born here i think what was most meaningful in that experience you know yeah i touched the star it was great. I even I was quick enough to take a picture just to like show what the star looked like. Um, and maybe I'll add that to the show notes. But the best part, part of the problem, the mm. the best part of that was after all of us had a chance to see it, to touch it, whatever. We found a kind of segue room that was still attached to where the star was. <laughs> and our huh. professor asked us to like dim the candles like so only a few were lit. And we all were able to stand there and then we all started singing silent night Whoa. and it was so okay, that seems cooler it was so moving because it was just us singing and we were away from the crowd so like we couldn't hear 
the, the line of people. We couldn't hear the hustle bustle of everything happening. It was just us mm. in this dark room with these few candles after we all had witnessed something personally, you know, amazing for each of us, however we wanted to interpret it. But then we all came together and we just sang Silent Night. And I remember when we were all done, we were, I'm even like about to cry just thinking about it. Like we were all just moved to tears of that experience mm. of knowing there was a baby that we know of. There was a baby that was born in a place like this and came into mm -hmm. the world under these circumstances. Yeah. It was just yeah. so moving. And I remember my mom, when she was with me, she like she looked at me and she was like, this has changed me. This has changed mm -hmm. how I see wow. the importance of Jesus's birth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because the foundation of it is it isn't necessarily that you're you're in the spot where the blood's on the ground. It's you're in a spot that really brought it home to live in your heart that Jesus was born to the most humble of places. Yeah. Yeah. And like we sang the song and it was so dark. It felt like it was nighttime and it was so quiet because we were away from everyone. It was silent. So was that a spot where just like, did the security guards forget to make sure you weren't ushered out of the room or? No, there were actually several rooms like that next that to were just or open. adjacent to the star that were just open. And our professor, he oh. had done this tour for 20 plus years. And so he had kind of learned throughout the years which spots to go to, who to talk to if you want to experience something that other people don't get to. Uh, Dr. Yo was great. Okay. An amazing tour guide because he didn't treat it as this tourist trap where it was oh we're gonna market this and we're gonna talk about how it's crucial he really focused on the historical and the spiritual being tied together mm. and that's what i mm. liked about having that moment to sing silent night was because we didn't focus on that was the spot we focused on just historically how important this place was if herod or someone felt the need to dismantle it and put something on top of it mm. Mm. And it was great, even just throughout the whole trip, like when we went outside, you know, the hillside, I imagined the shepherds and there's this cave side where we imagine the shepherds heard the angels speaking, you know, we saw all these sheep and it was, you just, you felt there, but it didn't feel like it was being taken away through the commercialized elements. It was just more wholesome the way that he did it. Mm. I can relate so, to that commercialized feeling. Yes, not, for sure. Not somewhere in the Holy Land, but even so my my family two years ago for a summer vacation, we went to Washington, DC and we stayed in a hotel like right on the on the mall there. So we visited every museum you can think of, every monument. And the the stark difference between the Jefferson Memorial, where I mean, he's just not as popular to tourists. So like it was a very quiet place. It was very somber and it was very reflective. It was a powerful moment to me because Th Thomas Jefferson is one of my revolutionary era heroes. Modern commentary on slavery aside, like he did a lot for us and we should at least acknowledge that. So like I had a I had a moment there and then same day we walked up the the steps to the Lincoln Memorial. And the whole place was just packed with people screaming and trying to get their selfie with the monument. And it was like, I'll go back to the quiet place. I'll go back to the place where we can sit on a bench and just take it in instead of everyone just making sure that they can get the selfie and then move on to the gift shop to further prove that they were there and not and not do what a memorial like that is designed to do for them. Mm. You know, that was my short treatise so, on commercialization of tourist attractions. I guess now that we've sort of <laughs> we've sort of talked about historically, you know, supposedly this is where Jesus was born and things like that. I think there are other elements of the birth narrative that are important to talk about as far as whether or not it's historically accurate. Uh, and I think right. it's because it leads into the commercialized elements of the birth narrative. So, for instance... Christmas Day, that's when we say Jesus was born, like we celebrate. But we know that Jesus wasn't born in December. Like that's a historical fact. Right. Yeah. For, like we kind of talked about that in the liturgical calendar episode. We did. Yeah. yeah. And so like 
On top of that, we know that Jesus probably wasn't born exactly in 1 AD. He was probably born around that. Some would even say maybe even 4 BC, but Mm. which is interesting because it's, you know, before Christ. Right. Or if you're using the BCE, but it could have been that Jesus was born like 3 AD or like Mm-hmm. to bc we just there's things historically there's that a, are important there's a window yeah the window is is important because that i think changes how we see the whole narrative of jesus's life well we know jesus was crucified at 33 ad well that's not also historically accurate like it's kind mm-hmm. of a give or take time period i think one of the things that's also super neat and maybe this is really twisted of me but <laughs> well, no, like, you know, I think, Stephen, you had mentioned the idea of, you know, Herod executing the any child, any male child under the age of two. Um, yeah, he became for fear for fear of this Messiah. Right, He became Pharaoh like he it, did. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Do you imagine it being like just thousands of babies or like what what is your interpretation of that? Because historically, that's not the case. Honestly, my interpretation Pretty from a pretty early age was, oh, wow, these storytellers are trying to show how Herod was like Pharaoh trying to get rid of Moses. Right. Yeah. Which, again, is that that tie back to Egypt that Matthew hammers home like the Messiah's family had to run away to Egypt. Like of all places, they go back to the empire to hide out from this this new guy that's trying to act like Pharaoh himself and get rid of any threats to his power structure. So that's, I guess that's always been my interpretation. I don't know. I guess if you're asking if I think it's more allegorical than factual, mm-hmm. probably allegory. Yeah, because I believe uh, this is one of the things in the birth narrative that does not appear to have any other historical sources. Yeah. And is therefore yeah. considered more uh, allegorical. Right. That and the Magi are also not historical. Oh, really? And the census thing. Right. Like Matthew doesn't even mention the census. I believe Luke is the only one who mentions yeah. it. And there's no, the Romans kept records of everything and there's no Roman record of any census around this time. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. We th- Which is interesting. It is interesting because there's a specific verse. So uh, Luke 1 and 2, or chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while... Oh boy, what the Quirinius was governing Syria. Like he's trying to I've always heard that as like, see, this is why the Bible's reliable because there's mm-hmm. like cementing us mm-hmm. in a place in time on things that we can verify and then with these names. And then yeah. you go try to do that and it's like, well, they, there's no census here. What are we missing? Which is interesting because like the readers of the time would have known that. Right. Mm. Like, they would have known that that was not the case, but it was still important to the narrative. But, yeah. So, how was it important to the narrative? They could have had had a different element to get them to Bethlehem. There's a little bit, at least what the association that's coming up in my mind is how David sins against God by conducting a census in Israel. Like, is there... there, Oh, yeah. Maybe there's a tie to, like, hey, census is something that people hungry for power do because they're sure. counting the heads of their own right. flock, which are the citizenry, the people. Sure. So maybe there's something oh, there. I, think it's, I feel like the, yeah, I think you're absolutely right because I think that the biblical narrative, for some reason, it's just, it's just like so easy for us to forget that like the biblical authors were not concerned with documenting history in the same way we are right. today. Mm-hmm. Like I even have a footnote in my, in my Bible about Jesus's birth and how like by Matthew describing and Luke, of course, too, but by Matthew describing Jesus, Jesus's birth as having an element of miracle, he's therefore tying it to all of the other stories of miraculous births that most like rulers and Kings had associated with them. Mm-hmm. So he's like, by doing that by association, he's calling Jesus royalty. Right. Sure. Yeah. And we just like forget about like those context clues, but like the the early readers who first read this, who was written for, right. like it was written for those people, they would have like picked up those clues immediately. I think the same applies for the Magi and the star, you know, the the, the star mm. that was guiding them. 
first of all, even historians and astrologists, like, they have tried to pinpoint this supposed movement of a star, and it just can't be done. Like, each year, the movements in the sky, it can't point to a specific thing. Like, there's no way that this one star could point exactly to this house. It just, it, right. there's no way they could well, figure it out. Well, and the text out. doesn't even say that. It doesn't it even doesn't. say it's pointing to Bethlehem or it the house doesn't. or anything. And it just says they saw his star rising. And this idea. Which means they were astrologers. Yes. And. If you think about it, the Magi would have only been like ten miles away, because they put they would have they would have been coming from Jerusalem. Why do I? I think that's so funny. I don't know why. So they would they would no, just they, no yes no in my in in Matthew it says they came from the east and they came to Jerusalem. I mean, I guess we don't know how far, but. It says they came to Jerusalem. But still, the star would have been guiding them, I guess, to Jerusalem, but they wouldn't have they wouldn't have had to have a guide to go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Oh, oh I see what you're like saying. they wouldn't have needed yeah, okay. it at that point. Like they wouldn't have needed it. If they were far. coming from if they were coming so far from the east, well, yeah, you have to get to Jerusalem first. But since Bethlehem is kind of a runduck town that people don't really talk about because think about it, you know, what good can come from Nazareth? which isn't too far from Bethlehem. It's one of those things where you just, that's not a go-to site. You're going to go to Jerusalem first. That's the hub of everything. Yeah. So yeah, okay. they need a way to get there. But once they get to Jerusalem and they're like, hey, how do you get to this Bethlehem place? People are going to be like, oh, that place, it's that way. Just follow this road. Mm. They're not going to need mm. a star to guide them there. And at the time, star could have also had a different meaning, His, like in in historical writings it could have meant a being or it could have meant something of a of a guide like literal guide rather than just a star well also i believe there are some other uh like kind of similar to the miraculous birth thing i believe other uh like demigod royalty type people were often associated with stars mm -hmm. so he's also yeah. making a claim about divinity I yeah believe. That, yeah there's yeah a lot of like the roman pantheon um, Which is interesting. Like, if we believe that the Bible is like, we could have like a whole different conversation about the Bible. But like, if the Bible is like affirms everything it talks about, I feel like you would have to conclude that astrology is like somehow tied in, there in affirming Jesus's birth. If you're like taking that as literally, like the Magi literally saw a star, right? And it told them somehow through astrology mm -hmm. that Jesus was being huh. born. And that them coming to Jerusalem and that correlating with the prophecies about m the Messiah, then somehow, oh. like, you have to take that as legitimate. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. If you're going to take the Bible literally, you have to, like, take astrology seriously now, right? I like that. Well. I don't know any way out of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a different Maybe episode. a different conversation. Yeah. Let's put a pin in that one. Because <laughs> um, I, can, I can see your logic. Oops. I would just want to explore it more before I agree with you, I guess. Um, mm, for sure. For sure. So can we, Emily, it feels like Josh has brought this up a couple times. It feels like we might have been leading here anyway, but miraculous birth narrative born to a virgin is like the big deal of the birth narrative. Mm -hmm. And I honestly haven't done enough research on my own to tell you why I doubt that so much. <laughs> chalk it up to western skepticism or whatever however you want mm -hmm. to frame that but let's do you mind if we if we turn the conversation toward virgin narrative um oh, and no, and what absolutely. some of that symbolism could have meant if it's not literal mm. and i understand that that yeah like i'm kind of interested in the question of whether or not mary was a virgin before jesus was born why is there the emphasis like the author seemed to think that it matters whether or not they're being symbolic. It definitely matters to Luke. But like, I don't, yeah, I don't know why that would have so much significance and why it should have significance to us. Like, I don't see why it should be significant to us. Emily, do you have, sure. do you have things to say? Like, do, is there an answer here or? There is. Okay. Can I pause it mine first before <laughs> you color it? I just want to, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. what I've heard, what I was, what I was handed in like a, uh, a systematic theology class I took through my church once, essentially the argument I was given was sin is passed down through human male sperm and 
in order for the perfect fully God, fully man Messiah to be born of a woman, he would have had to been conceived by another mode because sin comes from sperm, essentially. Wait, wait, say that again? You're rea- okay. <laughs> Liter- so, <laughs> so, so the concept here of the, the Holy Spirit yes. aiding Mary in conception without, quote unquote, knowing a man, what, the reason that had to happen was because from Adam onward, sin and the effects of the fall are passed down through human sperm cells. Mm-hmm. So if you can take the human sperm cells out of the equation and still have a child, that child is inherently going to be not sinful and perfect and can act okay. as the Messiah from that day on. Okay. Okay. Have you ever have you ever so, heard that before? Man, I've never heard that. Really? One. I've heard bits and yeah. pieces. I can't tell you like what like what bits and pieces I've heard. But now that you're putting it all together, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that part. That's why I had you start over because I was like, wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. Right. But now now I understand what you're saying. Right. Before I before I say anything, uh, Josh, what are your, your thoughts response. on um well like i kind of know what steven's talking about like i guess i was handed that in a way like i was definitely handed the idea of original sin and virgin birth and like somehow that was a prerequisite but i never felt like i got a good explanation of that i feel like i was just handed it factually mm-hmm. versus like symbologically Sim- symbol symbol symbolically there it Sim- is. i don't know symbolically is the word um symbolically there we go but I've also heard um, like scholars like raise questions around the interpretation of it. Like I even have a footnote in my Bible that says like pre Jesus's birth narrative, no Jewish scholars translated the word in Isaiah as virgin. It was always translated as young woman. Yes. And then the Jesus narrative comes along and like makes an appeal hey, to Isaiah. Can I- and then all of a sudden people like see it in a different light. What? Sure. What Bible are you working out of? Because you have a Bible with cool footnotes. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, it is the Holy Bible, God's Holy Word. Amen. Uh, it's the NR, well, what is it? Is it the NRSV? It is the NRSV, but it's specifically the Life with God Bible. I don't know the publisher, um, but it basically has a tons of footnotes and, uh, biblical scholars write introductions for each book. So if you want to read a Bible or a version of a Bible that has a lot of footnotes and the Apocrypha and really good annotations read the new oxford revised bible so it's the nrsv it's the new revised standard edition or version Uh but it's the oxford's annotated bible whoa okay okay it is that Uh, is it turns out mine also has the apocrypha that is the bible that at least i it was required in all of my classes in seminary but it's considered to be a more well-rounded bible in regards to any footnotes or any annotations or any comments regarding biblical texts Mm. wow cool so it's a really great version it's pretty hefty you can get it paperback or hardcover but it's a pretty good bible also if you want one for free steven um the new english translation bible is available on the bible app Mm -hmm. and all of the translators included all thirty-three thousand of their footnotes anytime there was a word that they were like "Mm, we could go one way or the other we're going to include the footnote explaining why that's intense Okay, well, that was a good rabbit trail. Josh, you were saying. Oh, yeah. The uh, the the verse, they're appealing to um, Isaiah chapter 7, usually when there's, a, when there's a reference to the virgin birth. Like, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Um, but until it was included in the New Testament narratives, it had not been translated as virgin, I believe, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, according to these footnotes. Yeah, so from my understanding, the idea of virgin wasn't actually, it wasn't until like the second century where many, many groups were trying to exact the origin of Mary's perpetual virginity. Uh, mm. And they're, again, they're really. Talk about that. Talk about that, please. Excuse me? The perpetual virginity. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Please talk about that. You've never heard of you, that? What? Yeah. You mean like she, th- some people hold that she always remained a virgin? Yes. What? But James. And the I- but his brother the James. The idea. 
the idea behind this was that sex and marriage were symptoms of original sin. What? What? Yes. I'm, I'm not, sorry. I'm not making this I'm up. I'm sorry, but I'm like not, I'm not making this I'm up. I'm sorry, but like seriously, like that. That's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no. So sorry, I'll but beat yes, that. There are, there, there are, I have not heard that concept there before. Are That's circles, interesting. There are circles and groups of people that do believe that. Yes, she remained a virgin what? throughout her life. Okay. Okay. And it speaks to I think it speaks to the purity is, culture around Well, I was going to ask Jesus if that's a birth. Catholic thing. It, it, because Catholics believe Mary was without sin. I forget the doctrine, but they believe that she was without sin and therefore I, that's why she could give birth to Jesus. I I I want to say yes, but I know that there are different sects of oh, Totally. of the Catholic Sex. Church. <laughs> nice. Sects of the Catholic Church that they may have very slight differentiations totally. on that. And so I can't confirm that well, 100%. So you were going to ask what I think. Yes. I did have an answer for that too. That was kind of a rabbit trail we, we went on. But uh, even though I feel myself a little skeptical about the the literalness, I, A, I'm not convinced it completely matters. Mm. And I, I don't think you have to believe in a literal virgin birth to be a Christian and B I also don't think it's dumb or preposterous to believe in the virgin birth like Mm. I think it's completely within the realm of possibility Uh. yeah and I think even if early Christians like the first generation Christians didn't believe in the virgin birth I also don't think that means we can't like some things didn't develop until third or fourth century in terms of Christian theology and even if I don't know, because there's also other examples in uh, the Jesus narratives that like seem to put the Old Testament in a new light. Like Jesus kind of does that a couple times where he's like, this thing in the Old Testament, it's talking about me. And like, maybe that's not the wrong hermeneutic to have because Jesus Mm. uses that. So if the virgin birth puts Isaiah in a new light, maybe that's not wrong to do. But I also don't think that it's like a requirement to believe that Mary never had sex. Sure. Either. Because also there's a little part of me that's like, how can God, if we're going to like have this concept of Jesus being fully God and fully man, how can Jesus be fully man without some human semen in him Mm -hmm. that made him into a man? Yeah. Right. Because otherwise that's not fully man. Right. That would just be like a miraculous conception where Mary somehow like fertilized her own egg which has like happened in some other species just not humans that we've done so like (laughs) unless you're Mary the DNA that's stitched together is only 50% man and 50% God whereas right right right. which honestly we we have to acknowledge that the fully God fully man language is further theologizing wow that's also true that's also true Because at the end of the day, it does say it in the text. mm, That is a good point. You know, why why is it so important that it has to be included in the text? Well, obviously, but why is the question? What is the significance of Like, I'm more interested in whether or not it happened literally. Why did the authors think it was important? Right. What is it that that element adds to the story to make it more? Exactly. So what do you think, Emily? Oh, I think I'm kind of with you, Josh, but I also I think there's just some mystery behind it. And I think that is the beauty of what it brings to the story is this whole idea of God Mm. wanting to bring redemption in the world through a human. So let's do it from birth, because really, God could have been like, all right, I'm just going to appoint this dude over here who's already a fully grown male. And who's mm. well educated, and I could just kind of zap these abilities or some, you know what I mean? Like the story could have gone mm. in so many ways. And yet we're given this idea of a baby being born of a young woman and a man who were not married at the time. And they were born, like, I mean, he was born in this time and in this place and in this setting. And then I think just the mystery and the creativity of the birth narrative itself is what can feed us spiritually. And whether or not mm. we want to look at 
all of it historically, all of it symbolically, what elements we like or don't like, I think we could look at each of the birth narratives and find something life-giving from it. Mm. And part of it, I think, is the concept of the Virgin Mary and her encounter with Elizabeth and the Magi and the Shepherds. There's something that we could just take from those segments as life-giving and applying that to how we see the rest of our faith. Yeah. Because Mm. I think it's just the concept of God wanting to seek salvation didn't know how to do it. He was trying to communicate through the prophets. And then finally he was just, you know, God was just like, Hey, here's an idea. Why don't, why don't I start fresh? Why don't I start from a little baby boy and see where it goes? I'm just imagining like Jesus pre-birth. He's up in heaven. He's like, father, hold my beer. (laughs) Be right back. Sorry, that was, you were saying something so deep and I just took that in a weird direction, but that's. (laughs) Hey, for all we know, that's how it could have happened. Who's to say? Who's to say? I don't know. I think there's just a lot of mystery and beauty. And maybe, maybe just to wrap up. And I think we've all touched on it. Oh, I'm sorry. Just add comments. Before we wrap up. um, One character that we don't, I don't think we talk enough about is Joseph. Like, just like the other, the other guy. yeah. I've heard him uh, given given uh, the title of like the archetypal cuckold of like <clears throat> of of the guy who is just like seemingly cheated out of the whole thing. Right. Like it just seems like <laughs> like God just kind of mm-hmm. like slid in Mary's DMs and Joseph was like, what the like we had a life planned, man. And now all of a sudden you just like take us on a different trajectory. And. I've honestly heard, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but I've heard Joseph actually tied back to the story of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, where huh. Habakkuk the prophet is told by God to marry a prostitute and start a family with her. And he does, but then she runs away, becomes a prostitute again. And every time Habakkuk is led back to her, God puts it on his heart like, buy her back. She's your wife. You don't. Mm. I view her as a daughter and valuable enough to redeem her over the long haul. So even if you feel cheated and slighted and emotionally abused, like buy her back, bring her back to your household where we're trying to do something new here. So I've heard Joseph tied to Habakkuk in that way where, where it's like, it's Joseph's call to be like, okay, I'm just going to have to trust Mary. And ultimately, Joseph, like in one of these stories, he does get a visit from the angel too. like, whoa, 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 before you break up with her, we're cool, man. Um, Even though like the explanation he gets is still, it's basically what Mary said. He was just told by an angel, which I guess mm-hmm. would carry more weight if you're like scared out of your gourd for uh, an angel visitation. But huh. there's... Joseph is like a whole character that doesn't get a lot of play in the story. Like he's in the nativity scene, mm. but he doesn't really, he's not, well, not really there what's to interesting do. to me is he's mentioned in the genealogy, but the genealogy yes. doesn't mention him as Jesus's father. Right. And so you're kind of right. Like it's yeah. weird that Jesus gets tied to Joseph's genealogy. Yeah. If you're going to believe that Mary was a virgin. It's like the archetypal stepfather, just like he's there. <laughs> he gets. Well, I guess it's, if you're going to talk about the, the genealogy it's because joseph comes from the house of david right and so really i guess like if there's no human sperm involved but that's what we're told right (laughs) wink wink that that could be a whole different thing where what if you know what if mary and joseph made jesus and god assisted in it like Mm, <laughs> we just right. don't there's just so much of the story that we don't know mm. and again that i think is the mystery and the beauty behind it where it's open yeah. to mindful interpretation not interpretation in the sense of see i'm right or oh, it has mm, to be factual mm-hmm. but more of interpretation of giving yourself something to feed on and to help you come to terms with yeah there are just some stories in the bible that they just don't add up like there are things that even historically Mm. people can't pinpoint yeah but that doesn't take away the significance of how it impacts us as christians 
Right. Well, I I feel like this is one of those famous examples for some reason that people who feel uh, like anti-Christian in the sense that they want to disprove it or like ridicule it Mm -hmm. and not just like make satire about it, but like, like try and like prove that it's false. They like to point to the virgin birth and be like, well, that's like obviously ridiculous. Like, therefore it's all false. Right. Whereas like, I think you're, you have a good point about like mindful interpretation like even the text is kind of up for debate in some ways because we don't know everything. Exactly. And so like, therefore we have to have conversations like this and whether or not, like obviously some Christians believe in the virgin birth and some Christians don't, or some Christians are skeptical. And like at the end of the day, it's because we're wrestling with scripture Mm -hmm. and not because I don't know. I guess some people are probably falling on the other end of the spectrum and they feel the need to prove that it happened sure. and therefore it validates everything. But like, yeah. I honestly don't think most people are at either end of those extremes. Right. And so my hope is, you know, moving forward and with each year as Christmas comes along, I hope, and this is for me personally as well, my hope is that as we read these birth narratives or the one, whichever one you want to read, that we can be mindful and open to the unknowns of the story and to know what's really happening here is it's leading to what the ultimate price is that Jesus paid. Like, to to die, he had to be born first. Mm, like, yeah, he, he had yeah. to live the life as a man. He had to experience life. And you can't really do that if you're not born. And so this really is the start of a journey that we all get to embark on each year. It's more than just this, you know, immaculate conception. It's more than just the Magi and the shepherds and this huge star in the sky. It's it's this mm. lowly place where a baby was born. It's just there are humble beginnings that we can appreciate and see where our humble beginnings as Christians, you know, start. Mm. That's good. So, yeah. That's very good. I like that. Oh, then to put a bow on it and then we'll just put it under the tree. For two weeks from now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Should we mention we'll that? We'll tie that up. Uh, well, first I'll mention uh, just a big thank you to Louis Zong for the use of his song In Full Color off his album Here. Steven, how many weeks are we taking off again? Are we taking two We off? are taking two weeks off. Correct. So uh, after this episode, don't worry, your podcast player didn't break. Yeah. Two we'll weeks drop off. Again in two weeks. So we, we are taking off Christmas Eve Eve and New Year's Eve Eve. That's how I want to say that. Yeah. The Wednesdays, the next two Wednesdays, Mm -hmm. we'll be back in January because it turns out Emily's a pastor and it also turns out that pastors' lives are crazy during Advent and Christmas. Yep. (laughs) Oh, yes. Especially in the COVID world. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I do also want to say thank you to uh, everyone who's been uh, leaving us reviews on Apple Podcasts. Um, If you like us or if you hate us, uh, please leave us a review. It honestly means a lot to um, hear what people think um, about the show. And it's been really great to engage with different people on our uh, social medias. Uh, If you aren't following us, we are on Twitter and Instagram at RavelPod. Or you can email us too. Um, If you'd like to send us a longer message, um, you can email the RavelPod at gmail.com if you'd like to send us something more personal. Mm -hmm. Um, But otherwise... We're glad you're here, and we really appreciate you being a part of the conversation. We're all pretty active on social media as well. At least I know Josh and I are pretty active mm-hmm. on Twitter, so if you want to engage with us personally. And also, I guess as a hint, you guys m- mind if I drop this here? Oh, sure. If you are looking for a place to even engage with us even more in a place where we can explore these questions together, we have some projects in the works for 2021 that involve... A Patreon where you can join a private Discord server and we can have all sorts of conversations um, back in a very private and safe and brave community. Mm-hmm. We'd love it. We'd love to have you guys. Emily, will you end 2020 on a high note for us? Oh, I will. So I'm going to actually read Mary's song from oh. uh, Luke's gospel. It's part oh. of the, the narrative. So here we go. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, 
For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Amen. <laughs>